You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Nancy Lindborg, and I'm delighted to welcome everybody to the U.S. Institute of Peace for a very timely and a very powerful discussion. Um, we have been here uh, for the morning, and this program culminates uh, the conversation on Iraq and Syria. For those of you who are just joining us, U.S. Institute of Peace was founded by Congress in about 30 years ago, dedicated to uh, preventing and resolving violent conflict around the world, and we work with partners to apply the best analysis, research, and tools for doing exactly that. Uh, we have a deep focus on the turbulence in the Middle East with programs and teams in both Iraq and Syria. And in Iraq, we've operated continuously since 2003 and have a deep appreciation for the importance of consolidating military gains with the programs that helps create a more sustained peace. Um, so this is the final program uh, of the day of Iraq and Syria views from the US administration, military leaders in the region. And this discussion is happening at a very pivotal moment as, we, as we've heard through most of the morning uh, with ISIS largely driven from urban strongholds. So the question is what's next? What are the stakes for Iraq, for the region, uh, for the world? And what are the roles of key actors? And this afternoon's panel focuses on the fraught terrain of stabilizing Iraq and Syria after ISIS. And we are honored to have with us uh, some of the most knowledgeable uh, and appropriate uh, experts to help us have that conversation. Uh, General Joseph Botel is here with us, who served as the commander of the U United States Central Command for the last two years. Uh, we also have Ambassador Mark Green, the administrator of USAID, and Brett McGirt, the special presidential envoy for the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS at the US Department of State. Um, I'm also very honored that we have with us our USIP board chair, Stephen Hadley, uh, that previously served as the national security advisor under President Bush. So it's a uh, very knowledgeable, panel. I'm delighted to turn it over to you, Steve. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, welcome. Thank you all for coming. What we're going to do is we're going to go uh, and give each of our three uh, speakers about five minutes to uh, opening presentation. We'll just go down the aisle here. Um, and then I'll engage in some questions with them for about 20 minutes. And then for the last 20 minutes, we'll take questions from the audience. You hopefully picked up little cards as you came in. Please write your question on the cards, pass them to the aisle. They will be collected uh, and then sent up uh, to me, and we'll try to get through with as many of them as we can. So let's begin in terms of opening presentations. General Votel, Well, thank please. you. Uh, first of all, it's, uh, it's great to be here. We appreciate the uh, invitation. It's great to be with Pastor Green and, uh, and Brett uh, McGurk, who has been a, uh, been a partner really throughout the whole process here, and uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity to come in and uh, and talk to you today and certainly as nancy said today is a is a pivotal day in many many different respects here uh with respect to uh, uh our ongoing operations here in in uh, in iraq and syria and i look forward to to talking with you a little bit about that today um what i'd like to what i'd like to do is uh, is maybe kind of level the bubbles a little bit on where we are militarily in both of these locations uh so as we step in to talk about some of the other other challenges that uh, that uh, that that are that are apparent in the in the environment here that you kind of understand the basis uh, from which we are from which we are currently operating from a security uh, standpoint. So I think the first thing to highlight to you is that the situation is clearly different in Iraq than it is in in uh, in in Syria, and so I'll try to highlight a little of that uh, little of that for for you. But let me just start off by sharing with you. Uh, from our perspective, as we have watched this campaign uh, unravel, uh, not unravel, but really unfold over the last uh, 
a couple of uh, couple of years in my current position as a CENTCOM commander, but before that as the as the special operations commander, where I was really in direct support of General Austin and, and his efforts, and very much involved in this. Um, I would tell you that at this point, if I were to go back a year or so ago, uh, we're probably six to eight months ahead of where we had anticipated on being uh, at this particular point. So the military success that we've had on uh, throughout the campaign has, has, uh, has been quite extraordinary. Uh, and it has uh, moved very quickly. Uh, we've been through some very uh, lengthy fights. Uh, Mosul was a nine-month fight. Uh, uh, led by the Iraqi security forces with the support of the coalition. Uh, Raqqa, about the same, very, uh, very difficult fights. But as we've kind of come through these major urban, uh, urban battles, the, uh, the follow-up, especially in Iraq, has been very, very rapid and has moved much faster than, uh, than even we had anticipated it would. And I think that's been a characteristic of, of what we're seeing out here. And, and it is something that, as a military uh, professional, we are always very cognizant of is our military and security situation getting out in front of, of the rest of uh, of rest of the lines of operation and lines of effort that have to that have to stay pace with this. Uh, it's very interesting to me as we got ready to go into Mosul here, uh, you know, 18 months ago as we were doing this, we tried. Uh, to make sure that our military planning was very closely aligned to our development and stabilization planning and the humanitarian aspects that had to go along with that as well as with the political planning that had to take place with that. And, uh, and, and as I've remarked to a number of people, in many, in many regards, the military aspect of this has been the, has been the easier part of this. Uh, it is, of course, the aftermath. It is the stabilization. It is the bringing back of governance and everything else to these situations that really, uh, I think, is uh, is much more is much more challenging in the, in the long run. So let me just uh, talk briefly here about where we are in both of these situations. So, um, you know, in in Iraq, uh, with the assistance of the coalition and with a lot of hard work by the Iraqis, we've essentially uh, <clears throat> transitioned an army that in 2014 was running away from. ISIS into one that uh, by last fall was conducting what I would describe as major large unit operations, a division and core level uh, uh, size and being very, very successful of it. As we looked at what happened in, in Mosul, this was, uh, this was large units uh, maneuvering on the battlefield all in conjunction with one another and uh, very, effectively, uh, very effectively doing that. And as you have, uh, as they came out of that operation, uh, the Iraqi security forces very quickly moved uh, to consolidate uh, their 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 success with a, a variety of other operations, some with coalition support, many of them without coalition support, to really complete uh, what I would describe as the liberation of their terrain from. Uh, from ISIS, and as you saw last December, that was essentially the announcement that the, the Prime Minister made was the, an, announcing the liberation of it. Since that time, they've continued to conduct a variety of, of, uh, of additional operations, again, with some with our assistance, and, but many without our, without our assistance uh, to consolidate their gains and, uh, and, uh, and uh, get after the underlying presence of, of ISIS that, uh, that, uh, that does remain in this area. I think it's important to recognize in both of these areas that while uh, you know in Iraq where we've liberated the terrain, they're no longer governing, they're no longer exerting taxes, they're no longer performing governmental functions uh, like they have in uh, the past, uh, but there, there, still is a, there still is a presence. And so the Iraqi security forces are very much focused on, on, on that. They have also begun to, uh, the Iraqi security forces have also begun the transition from large scale operations, major combat operations, to what, uh, to what they need to do now, which is much more a wide area security operations, which again will, will require them to develop a variety of military skills uh, that will allow them to address kind of the, uh, the insurgent or guerrilla type tactics that we would expect to see from uh, from ISIS at this particular stage. So we're working very closely with them. Uh, they are uh, uh, obviously coming out of a long fight here, uh, a little bit stretched, a little bit tired uh, in terms of that. And so we are working with, with them to help them recover and get back into normal, uh, normal cycles. I do expect that we will continue to see a, a reliance on the CTS 
as uh, one of their principal, uh, principal fighting elements. They've, uh, they've really been very strong since the beginning. We'll continue to see that as the Iraqi security forces uh, kind of step up, uh, step up to the plate and, and, uh, and begin to take on more of those uh, tasks in the, in the future. We'll, we'll see a, a heavy focus on the development of Iraqi border forces. Uh, this will be very, very important. Uh, uh, they do not want to have a repeat of what happened before. Obviously, ISIS is an organization that operates without regard to, to borders or boundaries or any, uh, any, any recognized norm of that sort. Uh, and so uh, being able to protect their own borders, I think, is a, is a key aspect of this. And uh, along the way, we'll see the coalition forces with the United States continue to provide the support that the government of Iraq has asked of them. Uh, and this has been something we've been talking about with them for some time here, uh, so that we do remain in a position where we can continue to help them professionalize, continue to help them develop into the, into the security force that the Iraqi people need uh, and want to protect them in the future. So uh, in, in Iraq, I, I think we're in a pretty good place right now, security-wise. Uh, there still is the presence of ISIS. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but uh, I think with the coalition support, I think the Iraqi security forces are in a pretty good position to begin to address that. The situation in Syria is a little bit different, uh, as, as, you're, as you're well aware. And there's certainly many more actors on the ground that are influencing uh, this, the Russians, the regime, Iran, uh, Turkey, uh, the United States, the coalition forces are all, all, all involved there. So it's a much more uh, complex uh, situation. And as I've often described to people, is, as the threat of uh, ISIS has has diminished, and it's not gone there uh, yet, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but you've also begun to see the other underlying challenges that are uh, that are apparent in in uh, Syria really kind of come to the come to the forefront. And I think this is this is what we're seeing play out here uh, right now. Um, we've been largely uh, successful and militarily in the areas in which we have been operating against ISIS. Uh, well over 90% of the of the caliphate that they controlled, particularly in the north and eastern portions of the country, has been liberated. Uh, there still are some, <clears throat> excuse me, some areas where they are they are present, uh, and uh, that we will have to continue to operate on. Uh, but the situation continues to become more and more complex. Uh, obviously, everyone is aware of what is happening along the border, uh, in the border areas out in Afrin. Uh, this has had a uh, this has had an impact here, where it has slowed down uh, uh, our operations against ISIS, as our principal partner on the ground has has reacted to those situations uh, and uh, and uh, begun to uh, begun to address that in their own uh, in their own in their own way. Uh, so what this means for us is that we have got to, we are going to have to continue to look at, uh, at the ways that we keep pressure on ISIS uh, and we continue to uh, develop mechanisms on the ground that help us de-escalate these situations that continue to, uh, continue to arise so that they can be addressed through discussion and diplomacy as opposed to uh, fighting. And uh, so I think this is kind of the situation that we, uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, at here in, in Syria. Again, uh, a lot of very good military progress made over the, over, the, uh, over the last couple years. But again, the hard part, I think, is in front of us, and that is stabilizing these areas, consolidating our gains, getting people back into their homes, uh, addressing the long-term uh, uh, issues of reconstruction and other things that will have to be done. And, and this, of course, is, uh, there, is a, there is a military role in this. Uh, certainly in the stabilization phase. Uh, you know, we have a tendency to talk about this in terms of consolidating our gains and making sure that we continue to provide the, the environment that allows these things to happen, and I, and I very much see us in that, uh, in that position right now. Thank you. Mr. Ada Green. Please. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, USIP is certainly an appropriate setting for today's discussion. I know in his former life, uh, Steve Hadley, must have asked himself many of the questions that we're grappling with today over and over again. And of course, uh, Nancy Lindbergh is former head of USAID's DACHA Bureau. She knows how important these issues are to us, so it's great to be with all of you. Uh, it's also an appropriate time to have this discussion. In coming weeks, the administration will finalize and roll out the first ever multi-agency framework 
those issues that we're discussing on stabilization. It's called the Stabilization Assistance Review, and it's built upon the lessons that we're learning in Syria, Iraq, but also, quite frankly, a number of other places, the work that we've been doing over the last uh, decade or so. This helps USCID because it establishes a clear division of labor and responsibilities in the joint efforts of USAID, state, and, and DOD in stabilization. Uh, it also helps us because it delineates mission parameters as quantifiable objectives as opposed to merely open-ended good intentions. The SAR will make it official that stabilization programs are more than just manifestations of American generosity. They are instead key components of our national security planning. Uh, they're part of the apparatus that uh, is brought to bear in some of the most chaotic places in the world. Uh, to emphasize, the SAR will be about much more than what we're talking about today. It's about much more than Iraq and Syria. It is instead a way to, I think, clarify and reinforce our working relationships in a number of places in the world, places like the Sahel and elsewhere where stabilization may be an important tool that we want to bring to bear. Uh, having said that, I think our experience in Syria and northern Iraq has certainly taught us a lot, and it's uh, certainly influenced our thinking. When I traveled to Raqqa a few months back, my objective on behalf of USAID was to make sure that, that our role there, our work there, was well-defined, that it was in line with our capacities, that which we're able to do, but also that it fit within our larger purpose and mission as an agency. Uh, as you might imagine, I was terribly impressed by the work and progress made by General Votel and his courageous men and women in uniform. But I gotta say, I was also particularly impressed with how well the blended civilian military team was working together without significant seams, without duplication, I think it's important here, as we get going, to distinguish in the kind of work that we do at USCID in, in areas like Iraq and Syria. So first off, we do humanitarian work. Uh, the assistance that we provide in a place like Syria is quite frankly similar to that which we provide in many parts of the world. It's based solely upon need and the availability of resources. So we're doing this kind of work already in places like Somalia, northern Nigeria, Yemen, DRC, and elsewhere. What we're talking about today, what we're focusing in on, is something that's quite different, stabilization. Uh, first, in Syria, we don't provide stabilization assistance in areas that are held by the Assad government. And that's very important to, to emphasize. We work closely with DOD, as well as the larger USG mission, and our work is really aimed at helping civilians to return to and recover in those areas that have been liberated uh, from ISIS. In Raqqa, stabilization takes a very limited form. It, it helps to restore those essential services that are the principal barrier to the return to Raqqa uh, of Syrians who, who formerly resided there. And those services are really things like uh, electricity, clean water, availability of medicine, uh, some semblance of education. Our footprint there, USAID, is very modest, uh, by design, is very limited, and we work through civil society in an effort to strengthen the community itself. So it's not simply about delivering services, it's also about reinforcing community structures so that they have the foundation in the long run to do these things for themselves. Uh, the importance of this work was really borne out by my time in Raqqa with General Votel. I remember we went to an IDP camp on the outskirts of town, and we interviewed a number of, of Syrians, and we asked them uh, you know, whether they wanted to go home, first off, and every single one without exception said yes, they wanted to go back home to Raqqa. And then secondly, we asked them what held them back, and it was always those sort of things. It was electricity. I remember one young mother that we spoke to who said that the reason that she wasn't back in her home is that her husband was diabetic and they couldn't get meds. And so when we're able to help restore those meds, she's gonna go home. And that's, of course, what we wanna see. Uh, Raqqa has been physically devastated 
It's truly rubble and damaged building as far as the eyes can see. But even with all of that, some 95,000 Syrians have returned home to Raqqa. I think that's a testament to the military's progress. I think it's a testament to a coordinated, uh, effective, multi-agency effort. And I think as much as anything, it's a testament to the spirit of the Syrian people. They want to go home. And so in Raqqa, what I saw with our, our modest footprint is not an open-ended commitment, but rather a focused mission with a clear definition of success, and that works for us at USAID. Uh, as you heard from General Votel, the same thing is true for USAID. Our work in Iraq is uh, different. It's quite different. Most importantly, in Iraq, we have the advantage of a national governing partner. There is a government that we can work with to do our work, and so that allows us to be much more ambitious. In addition to helping to rehabilitate some basic services in a number of communities, we're reinforcing responsive governance and trying to strengthen civil society. In particular, we're helping Iraqis prepare for the all-important elections that are coming up in May. And of course, those are the first elections since the expulsion of ISIS. Now, I personally have very high hopes for those elections. I think they're a great opportunity for the government both to strengthen its inclusiveness and its overall legitimacy in the minds of the people. And I think that a successful election producing a credible outcome is about as strong and lasting a rebuke to ISIS and extremism as I can possibly think of. Uh, many of these Iraqis, as you know, were brutally victimized by ISIS. And so part of our work is targeting those who were disproportionately brutalized and affected. So uh, religious and ethnic minorities, for example, uh, in and around Nineveh, we're working with them in particular to try to create the conditions that will allow them to go home and to rebuild their lives. And so that's work that we're also doing there. In both Iraq and Syria, our role in stabilization is very carefully defined, and the specific activities, naturally, as they should, vary with the setting. There's no one-size-fits-all approach, at least not one that would accomplish the goals that, that we all want to see and that the president wants to see. Most importantly, our success, USAID's success, depends upon the success of the State Department in mobilizing international resources and their role, but also, of course, DOD, helping us to have access and security. Without their success, we can't possibly do what it is that we seek to do. All of this, uh, I think, has created important lessons for us in the Stabilization Assistance Review Report. And I think that that will be a, a, a lasting uh, positive product from all of the work and all the challenges that we've seen. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Brett to, uh, to hear more from the state side. Thank you, Mark, and uh, General Votel. And I just want to, first I want to thank uh, USAPP, Nancy. Uh, I'm honored to be here as always. Um, I want to give a shout out to your team and Sarhong, who did really uh, heroic work. Where are you there? heroic work on the ground from the bottom up in very dangerous places like Tikrit in the post-ISIS phase to bring different communities together. I mean, it really made a big difference on the ground. And, um, and we're, we're fortunate that that work is going to continue. I'm also, of course, very honored to be here with, with you, Steve. You've been a mentor of mine and so many of, of us here in Washington. And of course, had the privilege of serving on your National Security Council, where I learned so much that we, uh, we try to apply here today. So. Let me try to just go briefly through, following on General Votel's remarks and Administrator Green's, of kind of where we were and then where we are. So where we were, I think it's useful sometimes to remind ourselves of where we were in 2014. So this was 2014, uh, the summer of 2014, shortly after Mosul fell and ISIS was approaching Baghdad, the, the desperate, uh, how desperate that situation was, it's really impossible to exaggerate. Uh, we were dusting off plans to possibly evacuate our embassy. That's how serious it was. And how do you go from that situation to beginning to fight back? And we said, look, we're going to do some things um, uh, to try to have a sustainable outcome as we take on uh, this really daunting challenge. First, um, when we say by, with, and through, we really mean it. This is not going to be U.S. forces going in and doing the fighting. Uh, this will be ownership 
principally at that time we were talking about the Iraqis. And we told the Iraq, we had a number of conversations with the Iraqis in that very difficult summer about what it would likely take for them to take back their country. Um, and they were really ready to do that. At the time in 2014, uh, we did not have an Iraqi government. There was just an election. We had to help uh, the Iraqis form a new government. They did form a new government led by Prime Minister Abadi. I think the government's been quite effective. But what that map doesn't show is what was happening in those areas. 7.7 .7 million people were living under ISIS. Acts of genocide were going on. Incidents like the Camp Spiker massacre, uh, Prime Minister Abadi was just a decreed 1,500 young Iraqis just shot and, and murdered and put on YouTube. Uh, so it is really impossible to, uh, to overstate the desperateness of that situation. So we had to get the Iraqi government ready to fight back and take ownership of their country, stabilize their macroeconomic situation, and form a coalition that was going to support them. So our coalition formed in September of 2014 in Jeddah, I think that was quite symbolic, uh, led by the Saudis. Uh, we had about 12 countries to begin with, and we now have about 75 members of our international coalition. So we formed a coalition, we began to work with the Iraqi government. We have about 30 members of our coalition militarily engaged in this fight, trained over 100,000 Iraqis, and I won't go through everything that General Votel just said, but we began, to, we began to launch the campaign to take territory back. And uh, if you go to the second uh, map of where we were, okay. So this is where we were at the beginning of last year. So when we went through a presidential administration, and I, I hope historians, when they look at uh, the transition from one administration to another, we actually had a pretty smooth, pretty effective uh, transition. But we only had about 50% of the job done at the beginning of last year. And President Trump charged all of us to accelerate the overall campaign. And we had a strategic review led by Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis, in which a number of ideas that were in the hopper to what we can do to accelerate the campaign. And so uh, we worked very hard to do that. Um, we also focused, again, on what we were doing on the stabilization side. And when Administrator uh, Green mentions what stabilization, I want to be very clear about this, because it is a ruthlessly prioritized approach. We are focused on uh, limited resources, but getting people back into their homes. So that means clearing rubble, clearing IEDs, getting electricity and water back on. Ruthless prioritization and very difficult conversations we have in Iraq and in Syria about what we can do and what we can't do. And the emphasis also, particularly coming from the president, on burden sharing. And within our coalition and the coalition that uh, we help lead, we make very clear this is not a US-only uh, mission. And when it comes to stabilization, about three quarters, 75% of the contributions come from the coalition. But more importantly, in Iraq, about 80% of the humanitarian assistance resources come from the Iraqi government. About 50% of the stabilization resources come from the Iraqi government, about a billion dollars from the Iraqi government. So this has been a coalition-led and a truly uh, by, with, and through approach. So let me just go to where we are now. So this is, these are the gains we made over the course of, of the last, really the last 14 months. So about 50% of all the gains that were made against ISIS came in the last 14 months. And a number of changes were put in place very early to delegate authorities to allow us to move a little faster militarily. Uh, but we also, very importantly, in the beginning of last year, did two very important things. Number one, we deployed a civilian team into Syria to help with stabilization. Because if you're not on the ground, you don't have eyes on, you don't really know what's happening. We had to get people on the ground. And Secretary Tillerson, working with uh, Administrator Green and a, and a joint team, USAID and state, and we have about 11 people on the ground now to work directly hand in glove with our military on this ruthlessly prioritized approach to stabilization, demining, removing rubble, water, electricity, the very basics. And I think it has been a very, uh, a very effective approach thus far with the focus on getting people back into their homes. And the statistics, I think, really speak for themselves. So stabilization in Iraq, where it's a lot easier, we're working with a government, we have the United Nations, it is very easy to draw international resources for something like that. We have an unprecedented number, unprecedented number of people returning to their homes in a post-conflict environment. So 3.2 million Iraqis have returned to their homes in areas that used to be controlled by ISIS. This is totally off the charts historically. It takes about 10 years or so to return uh, that amount of people in a post-conflict environment, if ever. And we've managed to do it in Iraq in a very short amount of time. I think that is testament to the success of the approach. In Syria, it is incredibly more difficult than Iraq. Can't overstate that point enough. We are not working with a government. Uh, we will not work with the government in Damascus for obvious reasons. 
Um, we have worked to get coalition contributions, and we do have now about, in terms of stabilization, stabilization assistance, uh, we have only spent a total of about $100 million, and half of that is on counter IEDs. And the coalition has also contributed about the same sum, and that is going up as we speak. Um, counter IEDs, uh, let me just talk about what that actually means. In Raqqa, my first trip, I've been to Raqqa twice, my first trip to Raqqa, our team showed us that we found a, a cell phone uh, from a, an ISIS uh, fighter, which had the number of IEDs that were planted in Raqqa. And when you launch it on the screen, almost every single structure in Raqqa has an explosive device wired in the structure. About 200 civilians returning to Raqqa have been killed by IEDs. So why are we investing in clearing IEDs? Because IEDs are critical to making sure people don't get killed when they return home. Why are we investing in the very basics like rubble removal? Rubble removal makes sure people can return home. You can get humanitarian aid into the city. Electricity and water obviously speaks for itself. So that prioritized focus is actually is returning people to their homes uh, at as low risk as possible. And the people who have been killed are people who wanted to go home even against the advice of local authorities or us saying, you know, it's really not safe to go back, but people are dying to go back. But ISIS, they salt the earth when they lose a battle and they don't want anyone to return. So the counter IED mission is really critical. Uh, we're training Syrians on this very dangerous work and they're getting the job done. Uh, but so uh, about almost 100,000 now returned uh, to Raqqa. There's a couple uh, numbers on the map which I just want to highlight uh, just to help with the discussion that we're about to have. The number one and the two are on the Iraqi border. That is where ISIS still remains. And uh, we are committed to finishing the campaign against ISIS. That is a notorious haven for these types of extremist groups before ISIS, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, again, I think we're ahead of where we thought we would be at this time, as General Votel said, but we're not finished. And we have to work through some very difficult issues as we speak. And we're often asked, well, gee, how are you going to finish that, that last part? Because right now it's slowed down. And I go back to the original map from 2014. Uh, we had much more daunting challenges back then, so we will, we will get this job done, uh, clearing out those last, uh, those last areas of ISIS. Um, the number two on the map is Raqqa. I already mentioned Raqqa. Raqqa has been a real focus of our stabilization efforts, and people are beginning to return even in this uh, most difficult environment. But the final map is, is, the point on the map is four, is Mosul. Mosul was probably the most challenging uh, humanitarian military stabilization uh, operation that we've seen really since uh, World War II. In terms of the, the scale of the conflict, in terms of the number of IDPs, we, plan, we always plan for the worst case scenario. And in Mosul we plan for, the worst case scenario is a million, ID, a million IDPs displaced people coming out of Mosul. And I remember a lot of meetings where it was like, well, that's never going to happen. Because if you have a situation with even 150,000 displaced, and you talk to the experts in USAID, that's almost unmanageable. Uh, but we plan for a million IDPs. And Rob Jenkins is sitting right here who helped put a lot of this together. Working with the UN, working most importantly with the Iraqi government, with local authorities, and with a coalition that contributed a couple billion dollars to this, we actually did end up having one million IDPs come out of Mosul during the battle and every single one of them received assistance, shelter, and aid. So we did not have a humanitarian catastrophe in the middle of the military campaign. Uh, in East Mosul, and General Votel's been on the streets, in East Mosul, the city's really come back to life. In West Mosul, where the scale of destruction is, is, uh, is much greater, it's obviously gonna take more time. But a million IDPs, and we're getting people back to their homes as soon as we can. And Iraq is now heading into a very important period with elections coming up here in six weeks and working through the Iraqi government with that. But I just wanted to kind of go through where we've been to where we are now. The scale of this uh, challenge, I think, has been really unprecedented. The buy with and through approach is not just a bumper sticker. What that means is that local people are taking ownership in their fight. I think uh, Ambassador Yassin mentioned that in his panel today. The Iraqis took back their country. The Iraqis fought and died to take back their country. The mood in Iraq is totally different than what we used to have uh, four or five years ago. It is Iraqi ownership, and uh, they've done an incredible job. And so now we want to continue to support them and move through this phase to try to consolidate some of these gains, which will be very difficult, but it's probably uh, the most important piece of the puzzle, and that's what we're here to talk about. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, terrific set of presentations. I think it really gave us a sense of what's happening on the ground, and I think one of the nice things is to see the diplomacy, uh, development, and defense all up here talking about the cooperation among 
pillars. It's a really encouraging site. I'm going to ask a couple questions, and then we'll go to the audience. Um, Brett, I want to uh, first two questions, one for you and one for General Votel. There's been a lot of publicity recently about reports that President Trump has frozen $200 million worth of assistance stabilization funds for Syria, that he made a, a comment that uh, we would be coming out of Syria very soon. Are we on the threshold of a, of a policy shift here in terms of our policy on, on Syria? Thanks, Steve. Well, I think, as you appreciate, I'm not going to make any news on the panel. I think none of us will make any news, but I do. I think it's worth clarifying a couple things. Um, uh, the President has been very clear to us that everything we're doing has to constantly be reviewed and looked at, and especially with every U.S. taxpayer dollar that is being spent. So we constantly have about a regular review process, and particularly on this $200 million, we're looking at where can it be spent most effectively. Um, I will say that as we undertake this review, it is not hampering our work in the field. So our diplomats and our development experts from state and USAID are, uh, have plenty of work to do, and they also have enough resources to continue with that work, uh, particularly the counter IED, the rubble removal, everything I just mentioned. So, it is not impacting our operations on the field as we undertake, I think, this very important review. Uh, it's also required us, and, and I've been a part of this, to go to our coalition partners and remind them that uh, the coalition has a big role to play in this. Um, I didn't mention one thing in my opening, and it's one of the most important things. I'm sorry I didn't, but it gets to the coalition. Um, I emphasize the regional ownership of this, and in the beginning of the administration, looking for some opportunities um, one opening that we've been chipping away at, and uh, Steve and I were a part of this with President Bush a long, some time ago, uh, the opening between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And uh, we finally, I think, very strong leadership from Prime Minister Abadi and uh, Mohammed bin Salman really led this. Um, and we were happy to be a part of it, a really historic opening. And uh, that led to really regional investment in the future of Iraq, in the post-ISIS future which in a meeting in Kuwait last month, about $30 billion was pledged to the reconstruction of Iraq. That is coming from the region and coming from global partners. That's not coming primarily from the United States. I think that's critically important. It's something to keep in mind as we review the spending. Um, in terms of our campaign in, in Syria, we are in Syria to fight ISIS. That is our mission. Uh, and that mission isn't over. And uh, we're going to complete that mission. Let me ask you a question about that uh, on the chart there showed remaining ISIS areas in the eastern part of the country. There have been press reports that many of our Kurdish uh, Syrian Kurds allies have been abandoning the fight in the eastern part of the country to go try to help out their compatriots in Afrin. Has that jeopardized uh, the fight against ISIS? And is there still a path to actually defeating and eliminating uh, ISIS in those remaining areas shown on the map? Yeah, I think, there, I think there's always a path here, and, and, uh, and we certainly have to kind of continue to, to look at how we, how, we, how we work through this. As you look at the Syrian Democratic Forces, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, just over a little bit of half of this 60,000-plus force are, are Arabs. Uh, and they remain very, uh, very engaged with us. And we have Kurds that remain uh, very engaged with us. So, you know, uh, obviously we have to deal with the situation that we have on the ground here right now. But I think we've been able to, to adjust uh, to the circumstances we find ourselves in right now and uh, continue. Our goal is to continue to keep pressure on on uh, ISIS uh, in these areas that were pointed out by Brett, uh, and at the same time continue to work through uh, the other uh, the other uh, tensions that uh, that that are are very present here in northern in northern Syria. Thank you, uh, Administrator Green. Uh, Want to shift to Iraq for a minute? When Nancy Lindborg and I were out there, one gentleman said to us, "You know, we've we've won three wars in Iraq." one against Saddam Hussein, one against al-Qaeda, and we're on the threshold of winning another one against ISIS, but we haven't had an enduring peace. And it was to emphasize, as you did, uh, and as General Votel has, the importance of the stabilization peace. Part of that, of course, a mission near and dear to the heart of USIP, is the reconciliation mission, bringing groups, sectarian groups that are divided by grievances, by history, uh, threats of retaliatory violence, bringing them together both at the national level and the local level. Can you talk about what the, what the United States and its coalition allies are doing on the reconciliation front 
in, in terms of Iraq? Uh, sure. Uh, in Iraq, uh, one thing we're doing is working to uh, help restore some of the cultural diversity that uh, has been a hallmark of Iraq. So in, in northern Iraq, again, we're working to help uh, Yazidis and Christian minorities to be able to return home, to feel secure enough to be able to return home and, and sort of reestablish their communities. So that's one thing that we're doing in particular. And uh, in fact, I know that USIP was at our broad agency co-creation conference a couple of weeks ago when we were working with a, a wide range of, of civil society groups, uh, Iraqi, American, but also from uh, other parts of the world to try to look at this element of, uh, of reconciliation. Uh, on top of that, um, what we're also doing is strengthening uh, civil society and working with civil society groups. So in, in addition to having responsive governments and capable governments and governments that are able to deliver services in an equitable way so that groups aren't disenfranchised, it's also important to strengthen uh, the capability and the role of civil society so that the needs and desires of citizens can be organized and marshaled in their dealings with government. So to have effective uh, democratic governance, you have to have a capable government that can deliver. You also need uh, the cultural ethic and, and uh, community constructs that allow those uh, desires and needs to be organized and pushed forward to the government. So that's part of the work that we're doing there. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, I want to go now to questions we've received from the audience. Uh, General Vitell, I think this one might be for you. In Iraq, how do we deal with the Iranian-backed militias in building the Iraqi military and security forces that, of course, uh, charged with protecting Shia, Sunni, and minority populations. We've heard a lot about one of the reasons refugees and displaced persons don't go back, uh, in particularly in Sunni Kurdish areas, is the presence of these Shia militias. What, what's, what's the prescription for dealing with them uh, as part of the process of building a sustainable Iraqi security Thanks, force? That's a great question. I think there's really two key things that have to happen. One, the paramilitary forces have to have to be brought under the complete control of the government of Iraq. And the prime minister and, uh, is, I think, is working in this direction. As, uh, as many of you are aware, he recently made some, some, uh, some decisions about, uh, about, uh, about control, about command control, about the leadership within the paramilitary forces, and very much in the process of uh, implementing uh, government of Iraq control over them. So that, that has to take place. Uh, the implementation of the paramilitary force law that, uh, that parliament uh, passed uh, 18 months ago or so needs to be completed. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, now as they've kind of come through most of the, most of the, most of the major fighting and liberated their terrain from ISIS, I think we now begin to see the prime minister and his leadership beginning to, to do that. The, the second aspect, I think, is that uh, in areas where there are paramilitary forces, they need to be replaced with uh, Iraqi army and Iraqi border. Uh, security forces as well, and this is a this is a key part of uh, of, uh, of the work that we're doing with uh, uh, with um, with the government of Iraq and with their military leadership right now is to get to get uh, to get the um, the recognized uh, military and security forces of the government into the proper places where they need to be performing the functions that they need to perform. Uh, Iraq does have a border security force; they should be on their border not paramilitary forces. Uh, and so uh, I think those two things, adding, you know, bringing the paramilitary forces, all paramilitary forces under the, under the control of the government is a key aspect, and then replacing where those uh, forces have been as a result of necessity for the campaign that they've waged here with, uh, with Iraqi army, Iraqi border uh, security forces, I think is the next step. I've got a number of questions. Uh, Brett, really for you, I think, uh, others may comment as well about the role of Iran. Um, one question about uh, the strength that Hezbollah has shown in Syria, um, concerns that Iran is building a corridor, basically, which you've heard many times from Tehran, uh, into Iraq, Syria, to, uh, uh, into Beirut, and into Lebanon. So to what extent 
is part of our policy to check Iranian influence, to interrupt that land bridge? Is that part of our policy? And if so, what, what are we doing to achieve that policy? Thanks. I think it dovetails on what General Votel just said. It's about um, Iraqi sovereignty and the strength of the, of the Iraqi forces to control their sovereign space. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. And if you look at the trajectory, um, I think the trajectory is about, is on the side of the Iraqi security forces um, and also bringing the elements of the popular mobilization forces under the control of the state. 2014, again, that map, the Iraqi security forces just completely collapsed. Seven entire divisions completely collapsed. Um, in that vacuum period of the summer, uh, no question the Iranians came in and helped organize what is now known as the popular mobilization forces. Um, but one, one check on uh, a lot of this, and it's just underappreciated the extent of Iraqi nationalism and pride in, in their country, and uh, the Shia religious uh, leadership in, in Najaf. Um, Ambassador Crocker used to say, you know, Iran's influence in Iraq is ultimately self-limiting because of the, the key differences. And sometimes the conversations I have in, in, uh, in Washington with analysts, it can, it can drift towards a, uh, Iranians are Shia, Iraq's majority Shia, so there's like these natural affinities. There are natural cultural ties, economic ties, that's gonna continue, um, but there's a real check on this. And um, so what we wanna to try to do is enhance the sovereignty, and this was a, a key theme of President Trump in his speech at the United Nations uh, uh, General Assembly about, about state sovereignty. Increasing the capacity of the Iraqis to control their sovereign space. When they come out of a, a trauma like they have in this war against ISIS, um, obviously it's gonna take some time. And so the election will be important, the formation of a new government will be important. Um, obviously if that government uh, wants our coalition to continue and we are fully prepared to do that, uh, the NATO Secretary General is just in Iraq uh, meeting with Iraqi officials because NATO has a role in this, training the Iraqi forces to control their sovereign space. That means controlling their borders, that means taking on outlaw groups that are not responsive to the state. Um, it also means, Steve, a final thing, and I'm, I'm sorry, Bayana, I saw you in the front row here. I want to um, obviously pay tribute to um, our Peshmerga colleagues in making sure that Baghdad and Erbil are working together. Uh, the Peshmerga have fought and died in huge numbers against ISIS. The Battle of Mosul would not have worked without that, without that cooperation. I think we have that relationship right now back on a decent track, um, but that, ha that has to continue because the Iranians are very effective at exploiting seams in Iraqi society. So, uh, this is a long-term effort, uh, but it really boils down to Iraqi sovereignty, increasing the capacity of their institutions, and particularly their, their security forces, which I think now have a pretty historic relationship with, with our coalition, and obviously we hope that can, can continue. And I'll just Please. add, add yeah. to that. That's one of the reasons that you've heard each of us reference the importance of the elections. Mm -hmm. So having credible elections, which is why the U.S. government and others are helping to strengthen the capacity of the election commission, They're working with domestic observer groups so that the results are credible and then projected out. That also, I think, pushes back on the influence of Iran and others because you will have a popularly elected, uh, credible government, and that fills in a very important space. Thank you, very helpful. Brett, a word about Hezbollah in Syria. Too soon to talk about that, but there's a lot of concern about how do you sideline Iranian influence in Syria so the Iranian Hezbollah are really basically calling the shots. Is, Is that it in Syria? In Syria. Syria, as General Votel said, is just a, a far more complicated space. Um, our presence is incredibly effective and strong, uh, but also obviously focused on, on the, on the counter-ISIS mission. Uh, we have worked very closely with, obviously, our, our key allies, uh, in particular Israel and Jordan, on southwest Syria. Uh, we negotiated, towards the middle of last year, a ceasefire uh, zone in southwest Syria that is held more or less. Uh, it is the only ceasefire in Syria that was negotiated really meter by meter along a line of contact. Um, and uh, obviously Jordan and, and His Majesty King Abdullah was a key driver of this to try to make sure that that area is stable. Uh, a key element of that agreement is a portion north of what we call the contact line where Iranian-backed forces are not supposed to be, and that's something the Russians have signed up for. And um, we are in regular discussions with the Russians on this. They have obligations in that southwest zone. 
We also have some obligations in that southwest zone, and that's something that will uh, continue. But we are committed to uh, doing all we can to make sure that threats do not gather at the borders of our allies. And that means all of our allies surrounding Syria, um, but in particular to your question, uh, Israel and Jordan. Uh, that is something we're very committed to and we're working at uh, in, the dip in the diplomatic sphere in which I cover uh, quite aggressively. Great, thank you very much. This is a question for Administrator Green from Ambassador Yassin. I can out you if that's all right. Uh, Syria and Iraq have important diasporas that are capable and um, sometimes wealthy. They have deep attachments to their home countries, especially minorities in those countries. Does USAID have any way or mechanism to tap into these Iraqi American or Syrian American uh, uh, resources to help in the stabilization and reconstruction process? Um, you know, I don't know that I can say that we've done it as we should or as much mm -hmm. as we should, but certainly we've seen a number of places in the world in modern times uh, where leaders have tapped into the diaspora, in fact, called them home. And we have a diaspora here that's vital, that's um, uh, capable, skilled, and resourced, and I think they need to be part of the long-term solution. So it's something that we need to do, certainly more than we have. General Votel, one question came from the group. Can you, we've seen the United States has been now engaged in this part of the region, particularly in Iraq, for a long time. Um, what has the U.S. military learned in the counter-ISIS fight that will inform our posture in the Middle East and our approach to the, the counterterrorism problem more generally? What are kind of the lessons of learned that you're now incorporating into what you're doing there that, that you've, you've learned from our, our 15 year involvement there? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think the answer that I would, uh, that I would apply to you was uh, kind of mentioned by Brett, and that is the importance of this by, with, and through approach um, that we are applying, not just militarily, but as, as you've heard, in, in many different, uh, different ways. Uh, this truly does represent a different a different approach to how we have uh, how we have waged war in, in, in Iraq and how we have uh, how we've done it across the region in the past. And what this does is it puts the onus on our partners on the ground to uh, develop local solutions to largely local problems. And it puts the onus on them to own the own the results of this. And I think this is a this for me and for us in the military I think is a, is a key lesson learned. Um, you know, as we often reminded our, our own advisors throughout the Battle of Mosul, our job is to help our partners fight, not fight for them. And when you when able to ingrain that, uh, that thought process into our advisors and to our leaders on the ground, I think we really saw a much different approach to how we were doing this. And I th actually think the Iraqis uh, appreciated this. And even as it kind of carried that over into, uh, into, uh, into Syria with the Syrian Democratic Forces, I think we largely saw the same thing, is that we did not try to do the fighting for them. We tried to enable them. We tried to advise them um, and give them the benefit of our experience uh, uh, um, with this. And I think that largely paid off. And I think as we look across the region now, we look to kind of the approach that we're putting in place in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. I think this is reflective of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly are drawing on all of our great capabilities, our ability to bring, uh, you know, superior air power into this, uh, you know, our linkage with, uh, uh, with development and diplomacy here is, is a key aspect of this, uh, of course. But uh, I, I think as, as I look across the region, I think this is kind of the way that we operate in the future. And I think it is, uh, it, it, it allows us to, rep to pursue our interests, to represent, uh, 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 to, you know, to, to accomplish our objectives, but yet it, it also allows our partners on the ground to accomplish theirs as well. And I think this is a much, uh, a much improved approach to how we're doing this. So I think this by, with, and through is the, is the, big, is the big lesson for me. We're running short of time. I've got a question I'm going to put to General Vitell and Brett McGurk, um, and then one for you, Administrator, at the end, and then we'll call it quits. A uh, number of questions about the role of Turkey, difficult. Um, question for General Vitell. Vitell about concern about Turkish attacks into Iraq. A question for Brett 
about Manbij, uh, the promise that was made that uh, the Kurdish forces would withdraw east of, uh, of Euphrates. That has not been kept. Uh, where are we with this, this struggle with Turkish interests versus our interests in terms of, of Syria? Well, I think where we are is we're in a we're in a uh, we're, I think we're in a we're in a very robust dialogue with uh, with Turkey about this. I think one of the important things is as we've learned here in in uh, in Syria and you know with a lot of actors on the ground is you do have to have the mechanism to talk to people and you do have to have the mechanism to de-escalate uh, situations and try to resolve them through discussion or through uh, coordination and deconfliction so that we don't have. Uh, we don't have NATO allies on NATO allies. We don't. Uh, we aren't conducting um, activities we don't want to be conducting here. So I think the, where we are is uh, we are very much engaged with them. Is is I think everyone is aware. We've been talking with them about the situation. We continue to talk with them about this. Uh, and uh, and uh, my objective is to continue to make sure we have that good open line of communication through. So where they feel the need to uh, conduct operations for their own security, we, uh, we have the ability to, uh, to, to talk with them about that and make sure that, uh, make sure that we are deconflicted and make sure that, uh, that uh, we are not uh, putting our forces in a position where they have to make kind of binary choices here. Brett, you want to add anything to that? Just a little, go back a little bit on uh, on Monbij. Look, we had a we had a, a plan A to go from west to east with the opposition forces we were working with across what we used to call the Mare Line. If you followed this situation back in the 2015 timeframe, uh, we invested a tremendous amount in those forces and air power from uh, General Votel's forces in our coalition, and uh, they just weren't able to make much progress. At the same time, pulsing through Monbij at that time, we had Brussels attackers at the Brussels airport. Uh, the major Paris attacks killed 100 people in the streets of Paris. Uh, so we had to make some difficult decisions. And um, we worked through that with, with the Turks at the time, uh, with the SDF, which ran a very successful operation in Monbij, and which really broke the back of ISIS in that Monbij pocket, which then allowed um, the moderate opposition forces, many which backed by Turkey, to both come west to east and then Euphrates Shield to really close off that space for ISIS. And since then, uh, I want to knock on wood before I say this, but we have not had the type of attack that we were seeing in which they would actually train a team, they would plan a rocket, they would train a little combat terrorist mm -hmm. team, they would go gather in Monbij and then infiltrate out to conduct their attacks in European cities. We haven't had that uh, since Euphrates, combination of Euphrates Shield and the Monbij operation to close that pocket. Where we are now is a diplomatic process to try to resolve some of the tensions across uh, that demarcation line outside of Monbij. Uh, it is incredibly complex. Um, I really just, it, the complexity of this is not just a U.S.-Turkey conversation. Uh, it is on the ground in Syria. That's why maybe we need Sarhang to go and uh, work with these guys on the ground because um, the different groups, you know, within Monbij, uh, you have, these are mostly people from Monbij. These are Arabs who live in Monbij. Um, but the, the people working with the Turks are also from Monbij. Um, but they have a very different orientation. Uh, some are, many of the, the opposition groups are outside of Monbij have a much more, for lack of a better word, but more Islamist orientation. Whereas Monbij right now, some women are covered, some are, and it's a much more kind of, uh, again, for lack of a better word, secular environment. That's a very deep ideological divide. And that, that makes the problem harder than just, uh, hey, we gotta get the, the Kurds over the river and everything will be fine. Uh, we have to work through this diplomatically with our NATO allies, the Turks. We had very good conversation with them here last week. Uh, we, and we also have to uh, reassure our partners on the ground in Monbij. Uh, and believe me, uh, the regime and other actors are not just sitting on the sidelines also. They're talking to everybody too. So this is extremely complex. And, um, but I think we're fortunate that we have very good dialogue with the Turks. Uh, and we're also on the ground in Monbij regularly talking to the folks in Monbij. And General Votel uh, goes in and out uh, quite a bit. So we're working through this. Uh, it's very complex. And um, again, we want to keep eyes on the prize on ISIS, because ISIS is not finished. And so uh, that's something that uh, is first and foremost in our conversations about this issue and many others in Syria. Last question for you, Administrator. Uh, question about minorities, particularly working with Christians, Yazidis, and other minorities on the Nineveh Plains and Sinjar, that area. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing to reassure them and, and help them safely return home? 
Uh, sure, great question and important part of our work. Uh, so first, we're working closely with UNDP and making sure that uh, resources continue to be focused there and in other places as well, but making sure that resources reached into that area. Secondly, we've used some innovative financing tools, broad agency announcement is sort of the technical term for it, but it's basically a conference in which we bring in a number of interested parties, NGOs, even other governments, and uh, really explore different ways of taking care of the primary barriers to those communities returning home and thriving. The biggest one security, and uh, security that they believe in and, and, and uh, uh, have faith in, and so we're exploring how that might be accomplished using a range of partners and the resources we have available. And again, uh, some of that uh, USIP has been involved in, in in terms of the ideas. And in a few weeks' time, I'll be returning to the region, and we hope to have some proposals that we can begin to work on. But the, the key is taking innovative ideas from a variety of sources, bringing in new partners to refresh the relationships, and identifying scalable pilots. We've come to the end of our time. I think it's been a terrific panel. Thank you for coming. Please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.